Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we're talking to our amazing Senate candidates. In our last episode, we spoke to Senate veteran and our current national president, Lynn Allison, about the Senate and what it was like to be a senator. With the election in full swing, this time we're talking to the people that the Australian Democrats are looking to send to Parliament to keep the bastards honest. We were joined this time by Leonie Green, lead Senate candidate for Victoria and our accountability spokesperson, and by Dr Roger Yazbek, lead Senate candidate for South Australia and the leader of the team that developed our health platform. As many of you would know, I am the lead Senate candidate for Western Australia and our foreign affairs and defence spokesperson. My co-host, Steve Beatty, is our lead Senate candidate for New South Wales and our spokesperson for climate change and the economy. In this discussion, Steve kindly took on moderation duties as we had a look at accountability, health and foreign affairs and defence. Leonie, Roger, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. We are into the third week of the federal election campaign, 2022. Last week, we saw the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, stand up and say that a federal ICAC, an integrity commission, is dead in the water. Uh, The promise from 2019 that uh, his government would implement a federal independent commission against corruption or an integrity commission was not going to happen. He said it formally, and he said it in a way that made it sound like it was Labor's fault, but we we maybe come back to that another time. But, Leonie, for you, the absence of a federal ICAC does does what for our politics? Like, how does it impact our ability to get things done in this country? So the absence is just embarrassing, I think, actually. (laughs) Look, there's a few things that come to mind, Steve. I think the first one is we talk about it today with this, well, I don't know, I talk about it today with this assumption that of course we need an ICAC <laughs> and, you know, it's just got to come in. But mm. I think it's important to always remember how these things have kind of evolved over time and where they've come from and it's not always mm. been a given that we've needed an ICAC at all. And, in fact, we've only seen this kind of evolution in the States over the last couple of decades. So it's still a relatively new concept. So yeah. in some ways <laughs> there is an argument to say, look, yes, it was a promise last election and here's another thing that they haven't delivered on. But actually, there's some really important questions that we need to consider and work through to make sure that it's an ICAC that's actually going to be fit for purpose. And instead of doing that, we've got this circus of, are we going to have an ICAC or not? And it's Labor's fault. No, it's, you know, somebody else's fault. Well, we didn't really promise it. Was it really a cool promise? Who knows? I don't know. So my frustration, I think, at the moment is that the debate is not a debate. The debate is not about what an ICAC might look like and what is it useful for and and what would we use it for. The debate is instead whose fault is it that we don't have an ICAC. Yeah, the the way in which it's spoken about broadly, you would get the impression that an integrity commission looks pretty much the same no matter where you look. But the model that the government put forward, which has been 
fairly widely panned, seems to do more to hide and protect corruption and corrupt behaviour than it does to hold people to account. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about the the types of criticisms that their draft bill had from Mm. bodies that would generally be fairly conservative in their approach. So take, for example, the Law Council of Australia that came out and said this is so wanting in terms of what Mm. we're actually needing in this area. We've got federal court judges who are openly saying this is such a problem, This, this, what you are trying to achieve with this piece of legislation is not even close to what's actually required. So we've got that in terms of there's some pretty clear criticisms across the board about what they're wanting to put in place. But if you then look Mm. at what the detail is, I mean, one of the things that has always jumped out to me, which just seems so absurd, is that they are happy for there to be public hearings for police officers, for for, uh, federal police at a federal level, but not for parliamentarians. Like, what? (laughs) Why? Why is that a different standard? How is that even remotely logical that that is a different standard? So, yes, absolutely, we need police integrity, no question. Mm. But but isn't that just as critical as parliamentary uh, integrity? So that's one thing that's just always baffled me and is embarrassing once again because we don't don't have that conversation sufficiently. Um, The Mm. public discourse is not about that. Instead, it's about whose fault is it that we don't have an ICAC. (laughs) Even I'm using that in this conversation. Even I'm kind of going, why are we having this debate that's not a debate? The the issue of the the police force, the the Police Integrity Commission, I think it's called, and you're you're nodding, so thank you. But there are plans to merge that with this National Integrity Commission as far as the the, the sort of the coalition plan is concerned. But um, as you say, like there there are a, a, a number of things that the Police Integrity Commission do that, other, uh, I think Helen Haynes MP's model for an integrity commission has, I know ours has it as well. The the, the police integrity commission has these things in place with public hearings public and hearings. findings for fact and powers yep. of the royal commission and and the ability to um, compel witnesses and this kind of thing. They're so concerned about the idea of being merged into the coalition's ICAC and losing those protections that they've they've negotiated for their operations to be sequestered and, and protected. Very separate. So that they won't so that they won't get watered down. Yeah. So you how know, ludicrous like the, the is poli- that? It like it's beyond ludicrous, right? <laughs> you yeah. would think so. Yeah. And there isn't look, the only argument that I think has some validity on that, right? On the and it's a little bit of validity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give them too much credit for this, but that you've got to start mm. somewhere, right? So we don't have a federal ICAC at the moment. You've got to start somewhere. I could probably forgive them that if this government wasn't so wanting in so yeah. many areas when it comes to integrity. I, I think that the challenge, though, is that from the other states, and, Roger, you're in South Australia, and I, I know this came up recently, that all we've seen at a state level is those integrity commissions be weakened rather than strengthened so the idea that a federal body is going to be strengthened instead against the trends that we've seen elsewhere is is really worrisome i mean the great irony with this government is the reason why most of the country is very het up about the issue of federal ICAC and and this is a hot political and sort of an uh, you know election topic 
is the government's own behaviour. Australian Democrats have been strong on accountability and integrity for 45 years from, you know, from the moment the party was formed. As, as the old tagline says, you know, keep the bastards honest. That is literally, literally our raison d'etre. And it's never been more apparent that, that that's important. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, and Helen Haynes has done brilliant work. There are literal um, minor political parties formed around a federal ICAC and mm. uh, political commentators have, have noted that almost every political party in the country, apart from the majors, is running on a platform of accountability and integrity. And from our perspective, it's like, oh, I'm glad everyone finally joined the party on that one. Thanks, guys. You know, this is how embarrassing it is, though. That that mm. that's what it's yeah. That's what it's come to, right? That I think the challenge in Australia is that we have forgotten what role the Democrats played. Mm. We have forgotten that for our time in the Senate, we absolutely kept the bastards honest. We held them to account. We improved things from an integrity perspective. And we had this challenge in 2004 in that Howard suddenly got a majority. And so for four years, we actually didn't hold the balance of power. We couldn't keep him honest. (laughs) We couldn't actually moderate legislation. And we had work choices as a consequence. And we had this massive swing in terms of what they were trying to do from an IR perspective that the Democrats had moderated without question for a number Mm. of years. And then we had this swing back and then we've had this, you know, circus of leadership since then and then this absolute void, it feels like, of integrity and accountability. And the challenge that we've got is I'm, I'm 45, I'm as old as the party, <laughs> but my memory of the party is um, very much um, the early 2000s, Natasha Stockdespoir, that was my kind of one of my political awakenings is um, watching Natasha in Parliament and just being so excited to see a young female and doing the work that she did at that point was just, yeah. In fact, when I talk to people still today, this is one of the one of the things I've really loved during this campaign is I talk to people my of my era and I immediately, particularly women, I hear immediately, that's Natasha's party, Natasha Stottespoir and her Doc Martens. <laughs> I hear from the older generation, oh, Don Chip's party. Yeah. It's wonderful. And yep. then everybody else in between is, oh, you're going to keep the bastards honest again. So those three components for different generations are so strong. Mm. But anyone younger than 45, <laughs> there's not a memory. of yeah. Like when we talk about the youth who are so disillusioned with politics, who are so frustrated with what's happening, it's really no surprise because in the last 14 years, but really the last 18 years, when you take into account Mm -hmm. that four years of a held majority in the Senate, we've not had a party who has stepped into that place of holding um, the major parties to account, of improving integrity Mm -hmm. measures. And so all of a sudden it feels like, but it, it's, as you say, Alana, it's kind of like people have suddenly woken up and realised we have mm. parties running on an integrity platform and nothing else for some of them and this absolute, and, and even the independence movement, the cat to heal candidates, mm. it's, it's climate action and integrity. <laughs> so there is an absolute void in our system and we need to address that. My only hope is that it has become so bad that it has to then come up from this because there is so much there is so much energy behind it now everywhere other than the coalition. Even the Labor Party apparently are committing to it. I don't know what their uh, legislation will look like, but uh, at least they're not saying it's not going to happen. 
One of the interesting things about Australian society is that we don't get worked up about things very easily. Um, <laughs> I was reading an essay by David Marr over the weekend and he was talking about the Whitlam years and, and the dismissal um, and he, he, he commented that it was noti- noticeable or notable at the time that when Fraser sat down with his first cabinet the day after the dismissal, there was no discussion at all about the possibility of civil unrest. It wasn't even a topic of conversation. It, it just didn't even cross their mind that Australians might take to the streets, that there might be protests or riots or marches or any of that kind of stuff as a result of what many saw as a, a coup at the time. And yet Australians didn't get worked up about that. And so, like, the, the question in the essay was, well, what would we get upset about? And it's interesting that we've reached this stage where the topic of corruption, the topic of misuse of public money, pork barrelling, parliamentary entitlements are everyday topics of conversation pretty much everywhere. I, I asked the question um, on Twitter a few weeks ago, you know, what were top of mind issues for people? At least half of the responses came back with corruption and that's how they framed it, not integrity, not accountability, but corruption, corruption. as mm. the thing that they were most concerned about. And we, we, we see it in all sorts of ways, but I think people are kind of fed up with seeing representatives, representatives who aren't representing them in their interests, who won't act on the issues that are important, who aren't acting on climate change, which is why we see these teal independents and these voices of candidates with action on climate change and, and accountability and integrity as the two pillars of their campaigns. But I, I think we've we've seen it with the way in which we uh, have dealt with aged care and the Aged Care Royal Commission. We've seen it in the way that we've dealt with or not acted on the Hain Royal Commission into banking and, and superannuation industries. We're seeing it with the Veterans Suicide Royal Commission. We've, we're seeing it with the Bushfire Royal Commission. I know, Roger, like one of the things that you are determined to see and one of the things that you find really important for us is that we go and take a look back at our handling of the pandemic with a with a royal commission like how how important is it that we learn those lessons and actually act on them yeah it's a great question steve i think um it really speaks to this whole idea of accountability when it comes to the decisions that are made uh, by our leaders and and by our government you know the pandemic i guess you could say came out of nowhere but we'd known about it that it was coming for decades. Um, we knew a pandemic was coming. We knew something was going yes. to to hit and that we needed to be prepared. Um, the government will argue that they had a pandemic uh, preparedness plan and that they followed that plan. That's debatable. <laughs> you know, we could sit yeah, did, did they know? <laughs> and, and talk about it, but we've only got a short... Uh, hour so um so we won't won't go into all of that but you know there have been a number of shortcomings whether it's um related to how how we handled quarantine right from the outset um yeah. you know there's some obvious standouts uh the 
the cruise ship um, whose name escapes me at the moment. But, um, Ruby Princess. Ruby Princess, yes, uh, the Ruby Princess, which really, for me, it was the, the start of the pandemic in Australia. We'd been seeing yeah. the, the stories coming from Italy, from the US, but really for me it was the, the Ruby Princess uh, with all those yeah. cases that came off the boat and, you know, yep. dispersed themselves around the country. We you know, had the issues with the hotel quarantine requirements and how we, how we handled that. The vaccine um, acquisition or lack of uh, acquisition of those vaccines, yeah. the processes that, that went into that and vaccine manufacturing, were we actually prepared uh, from a manufacturing perspective to be able to make our own vaccines locally? Why did it take until the pandemic did we realise maybe we should start investing uh, in advanced manufa- uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity with mRNA vaccines. I think that was probably about a year, a year and a half into the pandemic before that was even mentioned as a, as a possibility. So all of And these- it was proposed in Australia six months before the pandemic began. Oh, yeah. And look, the, the re- medical research community had been talking about mRNA vaccines as being the future of vaccines for quite a long time. So, you know, the fact that we have government leaders who are, who are, who have been so short-sighted that they seem to, what is it, jump on the ship after the ship has sailed? Is that the, is that a saying? It's a saying now. <laughs> uh, we've, we've known about these, these things for, for quite a while and mm. yet we didn't want to invest and, and have Australia at the forefront of that advanced medical technology. So, you know, I think a Royal Commission really needs to, to touch on and address all of those those three uh, main issues that I, that I mentioned, as well as uh, uh, other, other issues as well. But I've seen people say that Royal Commissions are, are, are a waste of money. You mentioned things like the, the Aged Care Royal Commission, mm. the Banking Royal Commission. I think Royal Commissions are as good as the people who set them up and as the people yeah. who follow up on those recommendations. Uh, Australian Democrats in the Senate would be a party that holds government to account, that fights for and ensures that, that governments do act on the recommendations of any Royal Commission or inquiry um, rather yeah. than just put it on the shelf for, you know, yeah. adding to the library but collection. We, like mm. we've, we've seen clear evidence that medical advice has been overruled by politics and, and economics. Mm. Um, I think mm. we've seen that uh, repeatedly at a federal level, but also mm. in most states. I, I think maybe West Australia is the only state where you would point to the way in which decisions were being made and say, no, you know, the, the government held firm against the, um, the economic argument from mm. other states because the the west australian um elena like the, the west australian economy was doing just fine through the pandemic um oh, yeah with with closed borders but you know everyone being out and able to spend money not being able to travel so traveling mm. at you know like do, domestically in, in west australia west australian economy was a standout with zero cases for months on end uh, mm. up until just just recently really i would love to have an, an investigation as you sort of highlighted no mm. one has been held account uh, held to account for the decision to allow the Ruby Princess to dock and, and for those passengers to disembark. Like it's it's just been waved off as, you know, like stop 
stop living in the past and 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 live in the present type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, stop prosecuting old arguments type of stuff. But it, it was never really investigated, and and nobody has been held to account for it. Mm-hmm. No one speaks about the fact that hotel quarantine was a stopgap measure initially an interim measure but it ended up being the only one because the federal government which i think is department of home affairs who's yeah. who's border force australian uh, border force part of wouldn't that be that's home affairs yeah wouldn't, um which i think at the time was peter dutton and is now karen andrews mm. right but neither of them have been called to account for the fact that we we still don't have a decent national quarantine program that can cope with this sort of uh, outbreak. You mentioned the vaccines. We haven't talked about the the inability or the failure to procure uh, rapid antigen tests when all modelling, all policy was based on the fact that that's what we were going to move to and then we we just didn't order any. I strongly feel the need, you know, my my sense of justice demands that somebody has to answer some questions about that. Even if Mm. they end up, you know, like simply taking a job on the back bench for another six months, as we've seen with Bridget McKenzie and others, mm. like I, I do, I do feel at least somebody having to go. Yeah, that was that was my fault. Well, I mean, there's, there's the accountability issue, Steve, as you um, correctly point out, and you know, there, there are people that do need to be held accountable uh, for decisions that were made and and for statements that were made. You know, we could spend sure. a whole episode talking about what happened in those early days. Um, mm. Did the the lax attitude of government towards the pandemic perhaps lead people to take this less seriously? To I think people um, people took took this uh, pandemic and took the virus far less seriously um, right at the outset than they should have. You know, because we yes. had the prime minister on the radio telling people to go out and buy schnitzels with their grandparents at the local RSL club because of indecision and because of that sort of lax attitude that, you know, we need to keep the economy open, the health mm. experts are overreacting, you know, this isn't such a big deal. And, yeah. you know, because of that, I think people did take it less seriously. But in addition to that accountability issue, Steve, I think we also need to acknowledge that this will not be the last pandemic that we experience. No, this will not be the last health crisis. You know, with things like climate change, with rapid urbanisation, and you know, as we uh, as populations start to encroach on uh, different habitats and ecosystems of different animals, uh, we start coming in closer contact with. Uh, viruses and infectious diseases that we have not encountered in the past. And so we need to be prepared for the next pandemic, better prepared than we were. We need to make sure that we are well-resourced, that we are investing in things like quarantine, that we are making our vaccines locally, that we are investing in health and medical research capacity so that we are best prepared to identify and cut off these threats before they become such a a significant um, impact on the country. So yeah, it's accountability, but it's also about being prepared for the for that yeah. next next pandemic. So, Roger, I mean, you and I discussed today, um, mm. and this is a separate to the pandemic, but mm. we discussed the issue of medicinal cannabis today because mm. we had a question come through, yeah. and you made an incredibly important point, which is the need for Australia to invest in research and technology, yeah. and, and it's not just to address pandemics; it's better to address. Mm health in general and the notion that australia is just a giant quarry for the rest of the world 
It's something that we really need to break down and, and, and destroy that myth because it's so not true. You shared a incredible piece on, on Twitter about um, this amazing young scientist mm. who is moving to the US mm. to be able to continue his research because mm -hmm. the government, like the, the Morrison government's attack on higher education and universities mm. means that he has no funded funding mm -hmm. to continue his research and he calculated that this country has spent mm -hmm. from from primary school to his phd has spent about a million dollars over his lifetime educating mm -hmm. him and he's about to move overseas and that wealth of education and knowledge and and frankly genius mm -hmm. is going to be utilized by a different country yeah. what other country in the world literally pours millions of dollars into the brains of our our, our children yep. Only to lose them overseas. Yep. Yep. It is a nonsensical equation, isn't it, Alana? I mean, that is one story, and there are hundreds of stories like his. Yeah. And so when you think about the uh, the investment that we're making into these uh, innovators, these scientists, these researchers who have the potential to deliver significant gains for the country, whether it is in the form of new medicines, new medical devices, or just new understandings of disease so that we know how to treat it better or that we know how to develop drugs for that disease. We are losing that talent. We are losing those people because we have failed to invest in, in research capacity uh, in Australia uh, from a medical a health and medical research point of view, um, we currently spend uh, per person about $70 per person on health and medical research. Compare that to the US that is spending uh, upwards of $200 per person on health and medical research. Uh, in terms of overall uh, R&D spending, uh, so research and development spending as a percentage of GDP, Australia currently spends about 1.7% of GDP and that, that number is going down. Uh, in comparison to other OECD countries, Germany, uh, the US, uh, the UK, Israel, uh, which are spending um, upwards uh, closer to 3% in in, other, in some cases over 3% of GDP on research and development. So we've really dropped the ball. You mentioned that we've cut spending to, to our university sector. On all measures, investment in, uh, in science and in research has a potential to, to return significant gains to the economy and, and to the people of the country. And yeah. for whatever reason, <laughs> we are we are cutting that investment. So I, I, I remember about oh, I, I, I want to say 10 years ago, but the answer is probably 20 years ago, the CEO of Intel came to mm. Australia and he mm. was speaking to an industry summit or to a governmental panel or whatever it was that he was doing. But he made the point at the time that Intel invests more each year in research and development than Australia mm. does. That's right. And, it, That's and, right. and he basically yeah. and he basically said, and you should be embarrassed by that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's exactly correct, Steve. Um, so if you look at uh, private industry, private mm. industry invests, you know, sometimes up to 20% of their margins into R&D, research mm. and development, some of the big, the big industries. Um, obviously not all of them. We're investing less than 1.7% of our GDP into R&D. And we look at some of the innovations that Australia has been responsible for over history, cochlear, CSL, and the influenza vaccine. Wi-Fi. 
Wi-Fi, amazing, amazing innovation from CSIRO, right? Um, that yeah. we are currently, you know, taking full advantage of right yeah. now. <laughs> the world would not like the world would not have survived the pandemic without Wi-Fi. <laughs> correct, correct. I mean, we are leaders um, in the world. We have so much potential. Australia can build a stupidly big economy off the back of its investment into science and research. And instead of investing more, we are allowing countries like China who are pouring big money into their um, uh, science R&D capacity and we are cutting back. So if we want to build a strong economy, if we want to be leaders in the world in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, knowledge economy, we need to be making that investment and yeah. This is where the Australian Democrats come in. I, I personally believe you know, we don't have vested interests as a party. We're not acting out of self-interest. We're coming mm-hmm. in on behalf of the, the country, on behalf of the people to say we believe that this is something that's going to benefit the entire country, not just a single group. And also for the future. I mean, yeah. we look at, you know, when, when you know, speaking to Lynn and, and Michael Macklin and other former senators, they looked at things in terms of not not the immediate political advantage in that moment when the legislation was passed, but is this a building block for future generations? Yes. You know, are we setting up this country to be better mm. for the people who are going to follow them? Right. And that's been so badly lost from politics. Mm. I think I, I, I possibly said it on an earlier episode of the podcast because, you know, wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey stuff. I can't remember where I said things anymore. But, you know, I've said that the last decade has demonstrated what happens to our politics without the Australian Democrats in our politics trying to make things better and being that voice of reason and being, you know, that that sort of arbiter of is this really going to help out or is this for short-term political advantage? And you've seen it with the way... um, you know, Labor twist themselves into pretzels trying to avoid being wedged and the coalition abandon any pretense of governing Mm. in their rabid uh, sort of determination Mm. to wedge Labor. It's it's madness. Yeah. Yeah. And I I made the point, Alana, um, during our campaign launch on the weekend, uh, I won't use the exact words, I don't know if if it's appropriate here, but... uh, um, but I, I think the seriousness has been lost from the Senate. I think that we have had a number of senators who who haven't taken the role um, with the seriousness, who haven't approached the role with the seriousness that it deserves. You know, the Senate is a house of review. It is the place where the checks and balances um, on legislation uh, are made. And, you know, that's what the Australian Democrats excelled at. And I feel like that has been lost. Yeah. I, I, I think instead, Roger, like some of them are approaching it simply as the the Senate is a point of leverage. Mm. And so if I can win a Senate seat as an independent or as a, as a minor party, I have more leverage than I would if I did the same in the lower house. And it's, it's, it's chasing an agenda or it's chasing a pet pet issue it's tracing you know like a, a populist agenda as we see with with some of our senators rather than you know like r- rather than sort of uh, sitting there and going okay i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure that the government's done their homework i'm gonna make sure that they've looked at the options i'm gonna make sure that they've talked it through and i i, I, I will say that it, that's not 
everyone in the Senate. I'm like I'm, I'm a huge fan of some of them. I'm, I've been really impressed by the work of Rex Patrick in particular around defence. He's an ex submariner. Um, we can we can talk about the submarine deal in, in in a moment. But like he's he's someone who's sort of sitting there going, look, I, I I need you to do better than this, and the people of South Australia expect you to do better than this, and and I think the people of Australia expect you to do better than this. But we don't we don't see that from from all of them by any stretch. No, no, hundred percent agree with that, Steve. I think um, I think there are some standouts, but but certainly, um, but certainly not the majority. Um, but Rex Patrick certainly does stand out as as one. Yeah, yeah, and the notion that some people have of oh, I can get a sentence seat and I can hold the balance of power, and therefore I'll be in control. Mm. First of all, they miss the point of holding the balance of power. And they miss what it means to hold the balance of power and and also the enormous responsibility that comes with holding the balance of power. And obviously I'm massively biased because I'm an Australian Democrat and I'm a candidate and I'm a national VP and I'm a host of this podcast, which is very important, as we all know. But I don't think anyone before or since the Democrats has held the balance of power and wielded that power responsibly and with the care that we did and with the um, – and, look, we didn't always get it right. You know, there are moments where we have been criticised, rightly or wrongly, for actions that we took. Mm. But I, I remember Michael Macklin – this is the beautiful thing about Michael Macklin. He will just hop onto our Facebook page and just drop little pearls of, of, of anecdotes as if they're nothing. And as a, a younger person who came to the Democrats late in my political journey, just blows my mind every time I read them. But I, I, I sent one of them to a video and he said, you know, political donations are public because of us. Uluru was returned to its traditional owners because of us. The Daintree is unlogged and Morton Island is unmined because of us. I mean, we, we argue, and, and you know, I'm sure Leone has a great deal to say about political donations, which we I think we sort of missed in our initial discussion. But the fact that like political donations is still a massive problem, mm. but in the 1980s they weren't public. They weren't public. Can you imagine what? Can you imagine today yeah. if political donations were not public at all? Can you? Mm. It's just it's hard. It's terrifying, frankly the level of corruption that mm. Australia would have delved into. And, 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 and Leonie, I'll hand over to you. What are your thoughts on political donations really quickly? Oh, I, have, I have lots of thoughts on political <laughs> yeah. donations. Yeah, go. Um, so a couple of different things. First one is on political donations, I think what we need to remember is we're just we're on a journey that we just need to keep improving. And so, yes, there is um, an element to which they are public, but we could make them far more public and we could make them far more timely so that we can actually see them in real time. Um, I think it's interesting that there is um, the open government partnerships that we agreed to and, in fact, we have had plans in place. So the current government, there's a plan that is the 2018-2020 plan that is still the current plan, which kind of cracks me up, and two of the key pieces within that plan that are stalled and, and visibly so, so they have a dashboard, you can readily see this and find this. Political donations is one and the other one is anti-corruption. And embarrassingly at an international level, um, we have not yet submitted the new plan, as in the plan that would actually cover the period that we're in, <laughs> let alone the forward period. So there is so much more work that we need to do on that front. 
But can I actually also indulge and go back slightly? It's really hard to have the conversation about what's happening in the Senate without also having a conversation about our media. So mm. our media yeah. makes a song and dance of, you know, a Jackie Lambie or a Pauline Hanson and not a Rex Patrick. So we get a song and dance with a, you know, literally a song and dance actually with a goddamn bloody idiot or whatever, the goddamn bloody adult I think was the line um, from Jackie Lambie and that gets so much visibility as opposed Mm. to the real work and the serious work of the Senate. So to Roger's point, you're absolutely spot on and the sad part is that our media does not And, you know, there's always a kind of flow-on question there about the community and what we're absorbing by way of news, but the media is not presenting this is what's actually happening in the Senate. I had this um, (laughs) a few weeks ago. I was travelling back. I'd been in Ballarat for work and I was travelling back and I had just found out that I was the candidate for Victoria um, for the Senate. So it was that was a bit exciting. And I turned on news radio. It was the day after the budget, actually. So I turned on news radio thinking I'd tap into some more budget commentary. And instead, I got the Senate because that's what we find on news radio fairly often. And it was so entertaining uh, to listen to, listening to what I've got to say in a very different way as a candidate than I might have listened to it previously. But what stood out to me was that we had Rex Patrick, Jackie Lambie, the Greens and Pauline Hanson in furious agreement, furious agreement because Mm -hmm. there were 15 pieces of legislation that were being pushed through on the last day that the Senate was sitting before the election would then be called. So all four of them, all four of them, (laughs) representations from their parties for the Greens stood up and in, a, in very uh, angry terms, unsurprisingly for some of them, furious that they didn't have the opportunity to debate these pieces of legislation that were being pushed through because yeah. Labor had agreed yeah. to them. Labor Party, yeah. Liberal Party, Coalition, <clears throat> agreeing to legislation, let's push it through. Um, it's why we have new rules for minor parties as well because when it, when it suits them, the major exactly. parties do deals and they can push it through the Senate. So uh, what... What baffled me or frustrated me that day was that I was ready to hear that and wanted to hear that on the news that night, that Mm. in the Senate there was this raucous because the senators could not actually do the job that they were there to do. They could not debate the legislation. They were literally getting one minute to uh, basically just put in their frustration, which is what they did for a minute and then the next one would come up. Um, So I, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole there, but the, the point being that we, we can't talk about this, the serious and important work that the Senate does without recognising the challenge of people finding out about the serious and important work that the Senate does. And if we have a media yeah. that does not want to tell us the serious stories, to go deeper and to mm. give us real news and instead give us ridiculous sound bites of, what such and such did this yeah. day because that's entertainment. Um, we spoke earlier about the um, submarine deal and just picking up on that point about what the media chooses to talk about and chooses not to talk about. We, we hear a lot about the sub deal. We, we hear about it in the sense of the furor that it caused, the embarrassment that it caused to the French government. Um, It was a strategic alliance that was just burgeoning, which got um, tossed away. Um, The cost 
to the Australian public, we, we think is going to be around $5.5 billion for cancelling the contracts. What we're not hearing about, and, and Elena, I'll, I'll ask you to talk about this, but what we're not hearing about quite so much on the on the defence front, and it doesn't seem to get any media attention, is that we're spending money on things like frigates that are becoming more and more obsolete in the in the theatre of war. We're spending money on things like tanks um, that we can't use in Australia because our bridges and road infrastructure won't hold them up. Um, they can only be deployed overseas, so it's sort of questionable about, about why we're buying them. We seem to have other options, and yet that's not where we're spending our money. The media isn't highlighting at all, and we seem to be... As a government, I think in the last budget, the government committed something like $270 billion in defence spending with nary a, a mention in the, in the popular press. Elena? Yeah. It, and this is right. I sort of find frustrating is, is that I think there is an element with defence where defence is seen as a, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a common good, so to speak. I mean, only crazy people suggest that we undefend ourselves or, or, or wind down our defence, and so there is this this automatic narrative that anything defence related has to be great and, and it's mm. just unquestioned. And I think also the level of I guess research and analysis and you know just doing their job that yeah. a journalist has to do to mm. actually dive into what's going on in defence and particularly defence procurement, which is a minefield unto itself. Pun intended. It, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I just saw what I did there. It's, it, I think it's beyond the capabilities of a lot of our media at the moment because of the deadlines, the shrinking yeah. staffing, the the fact that like defence is, is of itself a highly complex, highly contentious, and if you – if you are seen to criticise it, then you are immediately labelled, uh, you know, traitor is a very, very strong word, but is there is that sort of... Um, soft on uh, defence, soft, soft on China, yes. soft on, I don't know, somebody. Yeah, yeah soft. soft on, soft, yes, exactly. And so as a journalist, that's a that's a hard line to, to be taking. So there's that as to why it's it's not seen in, in, the, um, in the media. And honestly, the cancelling of the deal with the French... We, we literally spent $5 billion on submarines that did not exist and now will never exist. That only became a story because the French president made sure mm. it became a story yeah. with his I don't think I know about mm. Scott Morrison lying to him. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's sort of the analogy yeah. that will hang around Scott Morrison's neck for, for probably decades. I hope. Yeah, indeed, you know. It should. Because it should. Abs- yeah, no question because, I mean, that is that is a, a – I, I spoke at a, a, you know, a campaign launch about the fundamental failure of diplomacy in the Solomon Islands and, and leading up to that was the fundamental failure of diplomacy and foreign policy in the – and also our, our defence policy in cancelling the deal with the French. Yeah. Because the French are a major Pacific power. Yep. And with China moving in and making deals with our Pacific neighbours, really would have been handy to have had a major strategic power working with us on defence, you know, on, on defence projects, as yeah. the French happened to be doing at the time. So what we did was instead went crawling back to the motherland and in, in with the UK and our big brother in the US. And 
we literally just pulled out of um, a 20-year-long disastrous war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And recommitting to the U.S. seems like apparently it was a good idea. It just, every move that Dutton and Morrison has made over the last 12 to 18 months in regards to defence runs counter to the advice that they are very likely receiving from people who actually know this inside yeah. out. Yeah. And it's it's truly baffling. You know, yeah. they, they've deliberately antagonised and beaten the walls of drum against China and China has retaliated by cutting our lunch with uh, the Solomons. And I don't blame the Solomons for a moment because oh. we, again, have spent the last decade treating our Pacific neighbours like... Uh, with well, with like contempt. Con- contempt. Contempt, yeah. Like the I mean, yeah, you know, to, to to put it bluntly, we've been colonising arseholes in our approach to our Pacific neighbours. And then Morrison and Dutton recall in shock and horror when they struck deals with a, a, a separate foreign na- a sovereign nation that actually treated them with respect and treated them like the independent sovereign nations that they yeah. are. Uh, it's just—it's it's intensely frustrating. It was—it was interesting today, um, uh, Elena. I, I saw reports that the deal between the Solomon Islands and China did not come as a surprise to the government; that they were aware of it ahead of time. The trip by one of our junior ministers, you know, after it was announced was actually only because it was announced they were aware of it prior to that. The Prime Minister didn't bother to go, you know, Maurice Payne didn't bother to go. Instead, they waited until it was public and then went, oh, we'd better do something about it. Or maybe even because the US got upset about it and they felt like, oh, we'd, we'd better be seen to be doing something about it. But the the way in which we're engaging on the world stage has diminished over the last mm. nine years without a shadow of a doubt. We've, we've withdrawn ourselves. We've become more mean-spirited in the, in, the, in the way in which we deal with our neighbours. We've become even more mean in the way in which we deal with refugees and, and immigrants uh, and asylum seekers in this country. And we've become even more mean-spirited and, and isolated in how we deal on the world stage with issues like climate change to the point where our Human Rights Commission is about to be demoted, if you like, down from an A status to a B status and we will be an observer nation alongside basically North Korea and other pariah state on the human rights stage. But we will be sitting on the outer when it comes to things like that because we just fail fundamentally to address issues when they need to be. I think uh, Malcolm Turn was on the radio this morning on Radio National and he said, our relationship with the Pacific Islands is a hose you have to hold. Where, where was that Malcolm when he was Prime Minister? Uh, heavily compromised by <laughs> his conservative factions in the Liberal Party and the National Party, I think, is the answer yes. to that question. But yes. uh, thank God he's there occasionally, right? Like, mm. yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, sorry, Malcolm, that was a, that was a low blow because, as, as you said, Steve, he was heavily compromised. It, the, the promise was there, Elena, and, and mm. I think uh, a lot of us are disappointed that that promise wasn't realised, that it's Malcolm Turnbull feels like the, the last moderate Liberal Prime Minister we might ever see. Yes, yes, 
And I, I have to admit, I sincerely hope that Scott Morrison is the last Liberal Prime Minister we ever see if they continue their, their lurch to the right. And and yeah. and because it's, it's not even the fact that I violently disagree with their political outlook and their political beliefs. It's, it's the fact that they, like, they have zero interest in actually governing. They have yeah. zero interest in actually doing the job that they have, you know, run for office to do and have fought to hold power to do. And as someone who is outcomes focused, you know, in a party that is outcomes and evidence focused, mm. it's deeply insulting to me. <laughs> and the 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 enormous sort of clumsiness with which we have approached world affairs, and and, and you know, there is that sort of uh, assumption that foreign affairs is something that everybody ignores, nobody cares about it. Defence is just defence and it's the monolith at which we throw money to keep ourselves safe and no one cares about that either. And it's kind of ironic that over the last sort of, you know, six to 12 months, foreign affairs and defence have actually become quite crucial topics. Yeah. And not in the ways that Morrison and Dutton particularly wanted them to be. They've they've been beating this drum, literally warmongering about China for 12 months in order to run a national security and defence, you know, a khaki election. And I think in the last week we've seen it, the the fuse has been lit for this to blow up in their face in the most spectacular way possible. It's a short fuse. It, it is a very short fuse, yes, because they, as you're right, they, they, they dispatched a junior minister to go to Honiara and, and speak to the Solomon Islands president only because the US were furious and the US had dispatched a high-ranking official who was actually an expert in the Pacific and it was a a you know um you know, a big hitter in, in, in Pacific diplomacy. God forbid you know, like, we had one of those. You know, yeah, and it was it was not even a face-saving exercise. It was literally a you know it was a box ticking exercise and that we have dispatched yeah. somebody. Yeah. And it's it's just revolting. We are a better. Well, I'd like to think that we are a better country than this, and that we have the potential to be a better country than this. No, we absolutely are, and we absolutely should be. And I think uh, Australians, through our history, have demonstrated that we can be much better neighbours than we currently are. We can be much better global citizens than we currently are. We've withdrawn into ourselves, and we've become smaller as a result. And it's it's unfortunate that the last nine years have seen us become, you know, more mean spirited, but also more petty and more small minded, um, mm. but also like smaller of vision, smaller of ambition. Like we don't we don't have it at the moment. I certainly like when I look across the policy platform of the coalition, I don't see a national ambition. I don't see an ambition for Australia on the world stage as a leader in anything. I get hints of that in the Labor Party's policies. You know, the idea that Australia is going to manufacture things hints at our ability to actually export some of the things that we're going to manufacture. It's not just that we're going to, you know, like build stuff and keep it here, but we're actually going to be a world player in some of this stuff. The sense of uh, vision for the country, the idea of, of what it means to be a nation with a people that thrives, with an environment that thrives, where we take advantage of our natural resources in a way that is sustainable and replaceable and, and replenishable, where that wealth is shared and, you you know, like we, we can prosper together both intellectually, emotionally, spiritually and physically is just lacking from 
what is the most important election that we're going to see in probably the last 50 years, there's none of that. It is small. It is, it is, it is trivial. You know, like we, we spent a week worrying about whether Anthony Albanese knew the, the, the unemployment rate. And, and honestly, I, who cares? I'm, I'm much more interested in what he sees the future of my family is and what he sees the future of our country in the Pacific and in Asia and on the world stage is rather than a number somebody can go and look up or tell him if he really needs to know it on in 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 the moment but like we've we've withdrawn and we've become less as a result yeah and as as adam ban really pithily pointed out they can google it yeah. Um, which I think poor Anthony um, is probably desperately wishing he'd thought of in the moment as well. But yeah. you, you're right. You're like this, this, because again, it is not just the shrinking of the vision, it's the shrinking of us as a nation and of us as a people. Yeah. And it's reflected, I think, in our approach to defense. We are very defensive. You know, an, another terrible pun, and I apologize for that one. But the erosion of the soft power, you know, of our diplomacy and our, and our foreign affairs. Uh, skill sets means that we must hide behind the skirts of powers like the US. And under Trump, you know, we learned very, very quickly that the US cannot necessarily be depended upon to be our great protector the way it once was. And the UK under Boris Johnson is, well, that they've got no hope, frankly. You know, let's, let's, let's not... You don't which, need to be a defence expert. Which to... speaks the lie to the AUKUS deal, yeah, and, mm. and we don't need to go into it. No. And Alan Bem from the Australia Institute has written a book uh, called No Enemies, No Friends about Australia's place in the world. And he, he pointed out in this book that the Australian economy is the same size as the economy of Russia. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go ahead and invade a, a close neighbour the way Russia just did, but the, the contrast between the way we look at ourselves as a global power, the way we look, the way we we present ourselves on the world stage, in comparison to a power like Russia. Now, granted, we are much smaller than Russia in terms of our population and, you know, our, possibly even our landmass, which is unusual for us. Yeah. But in terms of our economic power. We are as big as, and we have the potential to dwarf Russia. Yet we act like, honestly, the the, the thing that that brings to mind, and I, and I and I hate to make this sound trivial, but there's that Warner Brothers cartoon of the big bulldog. Yes. I forget his name, but he's he's you know he's really yes. really 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 tough. Yes. and is the little yappy dog that beside him mm. that that sort of his hype man and runs after him and goes. What did I do today? Tell you when I beat somebody up. And that's us in comparison to the US. And yes. in reality, yes. we should have the power and the confidence to stand on our own two feet as an independent nation with an economy the size of a superpower, which is Russia, and present ourselves as a you know confident, compassionate leader in the world. It's been a long time since Australia stood up on the world stage with a sense of confidence in our own self-worth. Yeah. It's been a long time. And we're well overdue and we we need to break out of the – it's like we have, as a nation, 
we sort of have this imposter syndrome, thinking that we, you know, we're not big enough, we're not strong enough, we're not cool oh, enough, we can't, you know. Elena, I, I, I actually I think it's it's a, a, a little different to that. I, I, mm. I think we've been led down a path since John Howard in maybe 2000s, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, but somewhere around there we started to head down a path where divisiveness within Australian society was more important than a cohesive vision of who we are on a world stage and it was that search for power and and, and staying in power and and how it certainly started it and he led us down a path and you and you see it repeated time and time again like we went through that period where the idea of a larrikin australian was the image that we portrayed out into the world, you know, like Crocodile Dundee and we had um, Paul Hogan as our ambassador to to the world, as embarrassing as that might be. Yeah, we presented as the lovable goof. Everybody loved Australians. I think we 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 missed an opportunity during the sort of Hawke-Keating years to take a step and represent ourselves in a more mature, in a more sophisticated way on the international stage. And, and subsequently, we've retreated back from that. We're, we're in a space at the moment where our government celebrates ignorance. We've got some senators and some parliamentarians in particular who, are, who, who really are celebrated for their positions of ignorance, their rejections of science. George Christensen springs to mind, Craig Kelly, Matt Canavan even uh, to a large extent is someone who, you know, like is, is, is celebrated for the way in which they speak against the, the science and the evidence that's in front of our eyes. That kind of thing needs to stop. We, we need to move back towards... As I say, like a, a, a vision of Australia that is more erudite, that is more um, sophisticated than perhaps we are willing to accept. You know, like maybe that is an imposter syndrome, maybe that is a tall poppy thing, maybe that is a, an aversion to uh, cultural or intellectual elites. But I think there's there's more to Australia than that fundamental ignorance that we see all too often, the sort of sensational ignorance that we see celebrated in the media because it sells well. So, like, why not? I I understand why they're doing it. But I think Australia is a better country than that. I think as a people we are kinder and more generous than that. I think we've shown it in, in patches in the past. We certainly need to embrace and acknowledge our racist history we need to acknowledge our misogynistic history if if we really want to embrace who we are and and move forward as a country there are some things we just need to accept work through and and move on from you know or 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 take on board and 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 like own but at the same time i think we've we've failed over the last 20 years to really build that sense of self and to really project that sense of self-worth in a, in a global context. And it has such devastating long-term effects. Uh, I mean, as, as we spoke before, probably our biggest export is our intellect and, and the intellectual property that goes mm. with it as we just all of the astonishing young scientists that we produce because Australia still does, you know, despite everything, despite our our overt and, and quite deliberate attempts to destroy the uh, university sector during the pandemic, we are still producing 
astonishing minds yeah. and astonishing brilliant minds. Mm. You know, ironically, our greatest export to the world when yeah. those people pack up and, and, and take off overseas. And we're so privileged to have Roger with us who has chosen to stay in Australia and use his astonishingly brilliant mind in his research and now hopefully in politics. And, and, and it sounds like such a, you know, a weird motherhood statement and, and such a lament, but we, we can be as a nation so much better than this and we should aspire to that. Roger, final comments from you? Yeah, look, I'm going to pick up on where Alana left off and, and build on, on something you said earlier, Steve, um, that you know we're really seeing very little vision, um, grand vision, big vision policies and um, and direction for the country from either of the, the major parties. And this is one thing where I think the Australian Democrats really stand out and one thing that, that I feel really proud about the party, that we've been able to put forward an election platform that speaks to those big vision policies, whether it's our health platform, our climate platform, um, our defence uh, platform. You know, these are... These are big, big vision policies, big vision platforms, setting out a direction for the future, investing in medical research, investing in science, investing in healthcare plans that are going to set Australia up for the future, whether it's uh, denticare or a mental health uh, action plan, big policies that, you know, as potential future senators for the party, I, I feel like we're, we're really bringing something um, that's going to drive Australia forward. And that's something I'm really proud of and, and, and I'm going to wrap it up there. How about you, Leonie? So I would like to think that Australia is having a moment. <laughs> I don't know how long the moment is going to last, <laughs> but I kind yeah. of feel like we have hit a, hopefully we've hit rock bottom. <laughs> so I don't want us to go any further than we've gone. But I feel like we kind of hit a point that has mm. generated the type of response we have seen in this election. So the media is still telling yeah. us people are tuning off, people don't want to know. Well, actually, that's not what I see. That's not what I hear on the ground at yeah. all. In fact, I see the opposite. I see conversations mm. with people who have never wanted to talk politics previously and suddenly want to talk politics. I have seen people yeah. volunteering that have never volunteered in a campaign before. I have seen people who are um, wanting to talk about integrity um, and accountability in politics because that's what they see is lacking. They want to see yeah. action that is about generational change because they have not seen yeah. that for so long. So I feel like everything that you have just said around where we're at is absolutely accurate <laughs> and and really kind of depressing. I don't know whether you saw my face kind of just <clears throat> but but I do feel like it's kind it had to get to that point to generate the kind of response that we have had. I will be the first to admit yeah. that I had no intention whatsoever of running as a candidate in this election. That was not what I thought was going to happen. But I, as, mm. as I've said before, um, I, I still remember the day when I got, and it was an SMS, I thought it was an email originally, but it was actually an SMS asking me to come back as a member and I was ridiculously excited because I immediately was right. like, yes, this is what's been missing. This is what we need to bring yeah. back. And and I'm not alone. Like we're, I'm in a room of um, amazing people who are stepping up to that challenge. And when you look around, that's that's what I see. So I can I kind of get a bit frustrated once yeah. again with the media doing the no one cares. Actually, they do if they're printing the stories that are worth they really reading. Do. And, yeah. 
Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I agree, you know, to follow on with Leonie's point, I mean, I, I actually met um, a, a journalist at the, the ballot draw for the Senate on, uh, for WA, and when he realised that Simon and I, who I was with, were from the Australian Democrats, he went, oh, cool. It'd be good to have the real Democrats back in back in the Parliament, and yeah, okay, we, and we can scream massive media bias, um, but e- even within the media, I'm going to hashtag not all media. Even yeah. in the media, I think there is that sense of something needs to change, and I think yeah. that I am f- starting to feel a groundswell of, um, and it's not just we miss the Democrats or the Democrats need to come back, though there is a lot of that. Mm. We're seeing it in our young Democrats. I mean, so many of our young Democrats have found the party and joined the party and are active in the party. It it has been in discussions with their parents going, what the hell, who the hell am I supposed to vote for when everything is is awful? And their parents have gone, oh, there used to be this party called the Australian Democrats who were really good (laughs) on all the things that you're very upset about right now. And they go and Google it and lo and behold, the fact that we have young people in the party is purely because the young people have gone, oh, look, there's a party that actually still represents us and represents our interests. So there is that hope. But also, as Leonie said earlier, the generations who are 45 and above who do actually have a living memory of the Democrats in Parliament keeping the bastards honest, there is that groundswell. And I have to say, if this is the first, shall we say, you know, party room meeting of the Australian Democrats, you know, in preparation to going back into the Senate, I really hope our listeners have been inspired and comforted by what they'll get if we return to the parliament and, and, and you know, the level of thinking and the level of um, commitment to the cause and commitment to making our politics a better place that um, discussion has generated. And my goodness, it'll be the most enormous privilege, not only to serve the nation in the Senate, but to serve alongside all of you and, and Luke, who couldn't be with us tonight. It's a challenge and a, a uh, enormous responsibility that I think all of us are really keen to take on. And that can only be for the good. Steve, well your said. final thoughts. Well said. Well said. I think we have uh, a, 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 an opportunity as a nation to ask ourselves this question of what kind of country do we want to be? What sort of life do we want for our people? What do we want the sort of the lowest standard of living that we're willing to accept for the the, the people around us. I had this conversation uh, just yesterday around what is it that's acceptable as a living standard for our least fortunate people. And I, I, I sort of look at that and I think I, I, I want them to have a roof over their head. I, I want them to be fed. I want them to be able to clothe themselves, um, you know, like and, and, and spend their money on in, in their own right. So the the, the uh, cashless welfare card, I, I want to see the end of it. I want people to be able to spend their own money as their own money, uh, you know, like rather than this sort of financial coercive control thing that the government set up. I, I, I want people to be able to spend their money, but I want them to be able to live with dignity. I want them to be able to get healthcare. I want them to be able to access education at whatever level that they um, that they they need and, and, and want and are interested in. That's something that I think we we can agree is acceptable. You know, like I I I I, I think that's something that we should just acknowledge as 
like if if that were me, I would want to be able to feed my kids. I'd, I'd want to be able to buy medicine for the family. I'd want to be able to make sure we had a roof uh, over our heads and feel secure and, and, and a sense of constancy in a way that many Australians just don't. There are probably one and a half to two million Australians who don't enjoy the very basics that I've just articulated. And at the same time, we have a small number of people who are accumulating massive amounts of wealth, drawing on the natural resources that are um, national resources, you know, like that essentially belong to all of us in a way that they don't pay taxes, they don't contribute back into the economy, they don't really give much into the nation whilst taking so much for themselves. Like, I, I don't think those two things are okay. You know, it's, it's not okay that we have billionaires buying influence and buying political clout at the same time that we have people who are forced to live on the streets, live in their cars, have to choose on a daily basis whether to feed their kids or buy them medicine or buy them clothes or or send them to school with lunch or, or, or not. Like those things aren't, aren't, aren't okay that we're making both sets of choices on a day-to-day basis. So I, I, I think we've taken ourselves down a path over the last 40 years or so where our balance is out. The balance between public abundance and and private luxury is skewed too heavily into the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few and and our enjoyment of our public resources, our our national parks, our public spaces has been narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and um, we need to change that and we need to change it in a way that is generous of spirit that is open that is welcoming to the broadest possible range of people that um, acknowledges the amazing contribution that people from other cultures and other parts of the world make to Australia without shutting them out without locking them up without keeping them away from society the opportunity is immense and I'd, I'd, I'd really love to see us shift our discourse towards First of all, the kind of country that we want to be and the kind of society we want to live in rather than these sort of first and foremost, well, what's it going to cost and who's going to pay for it and where are we going to find money, which I think is the wrong argument to have. So let's go there. Yeah, I like, I like that vision of Australia. Let's do that. Thank you, Leonie and Roger, for giving us their time in a busy election campaign. A shout out to our Queensland lead Senate candidate, Luke Arbuckle, spokesperson for sustainable agriculture, environment and rural and regional affairs, who couldn't join us on this recording, but we hope to have him on very soon to talk about his policy areas. If you want to know more about Luke, Leonie, Roger, Steve and I, go to democrats.org.au. And on our homepage, you'll see buttons to press to meet our candidates. If you have questions for any of our candidates, email them through to info at democrats.org.au and we'll ensure the candidate in your state gets in contact with you. I've put a link in the show notes to each of the election platforms we discussed on this episode, as well as a link to Alan Bem's book, No Enemies, No Friends, Restoring Australia's Global Relevance, which is well worth a read. At the time of recording this, 
We have two weeks to go until election day. If you want to help us stage the greatest comeback in Australian political history, put a one in the box against Australian Democrats on your Senate ballot paper and help us not only make history, but return us to the federal parliament so we can keep the bastards honest. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.